0: I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn uh, to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue on this evening in Colossians. And uh, to this point in chapter 2, uh, Paul has, as we've seen, been reminding the Colossians of the, the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel. And now, here in our text for tonight, he uh, begins to apply his doctrine. There's some specific things that he's gunning for, so to speak, and now he turns his doctrine and begins to make application. And so uh, we'll read tonight uh, verses 16 through 19, but we'll be focusing uh, really just on verses 16 and 17 tonight. So this is Colossians 2, uh, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions that he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. And so, again, over and over in chapter 2, he's been showing the the glory of Christ, especially in those verses beginning in chapter 2, verse 9. He had talked about Christ's deity and the complete salvation that believers had in Christ and the a way in which Christ had saved them by circumcising their hearts and having taken them from when they were dead in sins and making them alive through the forgiveness of those sins and how God had taken the law which had stood opposed to them out of the way, nailing it to the cross. God the Father had disarmed the spiritual enemies, the the devil and his host, by triumphing over them through the cross of Christ, his beloved Son, and now, as we said, here, in beginning in verse 16, there are some particular and practical implications that are laid out for these Christians, given the false teachings that were coming their way. And as I've mentioned from time to time, as we've been in Colossians, the particular blend of false teaching that was coming their way seems to com- have combined some elements of Judaism and some of what we might call Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, kind of a secret esoteric knowledge kind of thing, and I think allusion is made there to that in these, uh, uh, the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions, uh, being inflated without cause by his fleshly mind that you see there in, in what we read. And there's also uh, some elements of asceticism, a, a strong, rigorous, harsh treatment of the body, that's going on. And, uh, and so what Paul does in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 2 is to apply the truths concerning Christ and the gospel to these very issues, the Judaism, the Gnosticism or whatever you want to call it, the asceticism, which these false teachers were pushing on them. And so tonight we're, we're looking at, at verses 16 and 17. And verses 16 and 17, he deals with the, the Judaizing tendency. And Lord willing, when we get to verses 18 and following, we'll consider uh, some of the other stuff that Paul addresses and applies the doctrines that he has been laying out concerning Christ and the gospel as he applies it to those other things. But tonight, we'll look at the, uh, the situation with the Judaizing tendencies. Now, notice for starters, the clear connection that is... Made in the text between verse 16 and what has come before. Paul connects what he is about to say in verse 16 and following with what has come before by that word, therefore. In other words, in light of all that he has just said concerning Christ and the gospel, here are the practical implications for you. Namely, this no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, in saying this, Paul is pointing out that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have ceased now that Christ has come. Why have they ceased? Because their purpose has been fulfilled. What was their purpose? Well, broadly speaking, the ceremonial law was to foreshadow Christ. And though there uh, is also an element in the ceremonial law which served the purpose of of keeping the Jewish nation separate and distinct from the other nations of the world and set apart unto God until the Messiah came. In that aspect as well, the ceremonial law fulfilled its purpose because the Messiah came. Now Paul's stance here toward the ceremonial law is very much along the same lines that he took when dealing with the churches of Galatia. Just think back to uh, some of Paul's words there in Galatians Galatians 5.1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, stand your ground on this. Don't let people bow you over and put you under extra restrictions. Don't be subject to a yoke of slavery. And it's interesting that Paul didn't say, simply say, you don't have to be subject to a yoke of slavery, but, you know, if you want to, You can. It's up to you. He says, no, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And so in similar fashion, he says here in verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Or the ESV translated it, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. But the different translations amount to the same thing. Namely, that no one has any business judging you as a Christian in regard to these following things. And... You don't need to listen to them if they do try to judge you. And not only that, you must not pay attention to them if they try to judge you, because you were you free in respect to these things. And then he mentions these specific aspects of the ceremonial law, which he has in his sights. Food and drink, a festival, new moon, and a Sabbath day. Now, we'll come back in just a moment to speak in more detail of These five things that he lays out here, but first look ahead to verse 17, to the reason which he gives for this. And the reason that he gives is that these five things, these particular things, and even all the ceremonial law, are a shadow of what was to come, a mere shadow of Christ and the new order which was to come in him. He says, these were the shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Calvin was helpful when he said, Those, therefore, who still adhere to those shadows act like one who would judge a man's appearance from his shadow, while in the meantime he had himself personally before his eyes. For Christ is now manifested to us, and hence we enjoy him as being present. For the substance of those things which the ceremonies anciently prefigured is now presented before our eyes in Christ inasmuch as he contains in himself everything that they marked out as future hence the man that calls back the ceremonies into use either buries the manifestation of Christ or robs Christ of his excellence and makes him in a manner void so you can see what what Calvin is saying there is that now that Christ has come we have The reality, we have the substance right before us. No need to go back to the shadows when you have the reality, you have the real thing right before your eyes. And if we do that, if we turn back to the shadows, this is a a preference for the image that was pointing to the future good instead of actually clinging to the actual good itself. And therefore, we find some some references along parallel lines in the the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 8.5 says that the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrificial laws were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Or We find in Hebrews 9.10 that the law consisted of regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. They were imposed for a season, for a period, until the time of Reformation. And in Hebrews 10.1, we read this, that... For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So I think, I think this is pretty, pretty clear. The, these things prescribed in the Old Testament laws were shadows of the good things that were to come and were not actually the good things themselves. They were They were temporary, imposed, until the time of fulfillment, the time of reformation, or as Paul would say in Galatians 3:19, "Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come, to whom the promise had been made." Or again, later on, Galatians 3, he says, "But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed." But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So now that Christ has come, these shadows in the ceremonial law are done away with. And so he speaks rather forcefully to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4. He says, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that I... Perhaps have labored over you in vain. And so the, the food, the drink, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths had their purpose in the Old Testament economy. And let's, let's think about what those purposes were. In regard to, to food, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, we could think specifically of Leviticus chapter 11, and that long list of the distinction between clean and unclean foods. This served to keep Israel separate from the nations, and it also served to point them to the holiness of God and that his people were to be separate to him, holy unto the Lord. And therefore, the command of Leviticus 11.45 is picked up by Peter in 1 Peter 1.16, where he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And though there were not merely some, uh, nearly so many laws relating to drink as there were to food in the Old Testament, nevertheless, there were some. Related to drink, so we could think of the law of the Nazarite, Numbers chapter six, uh, which forbade the Nazarite from drinking wine, strong drink, vinegar, or grape juice, and also Numbers nineteen fifteen legislated that every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. There were not many regulations about drink in the Old Testament, but there were some. These things are done away with. Likewise, in the Old Testament, there were distinct days for observation. There were the festivals, and so uh, Deuteronomy sixteen mentioned those those three annual festivals uh, in regard to which every Israelite male was to, to go up and present himself before the Lord and those three main feasts were the uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in connection with the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of booths and so let's let 's walk through. Uh, walk through those festivals. The, the Passover, of course, was was looking back to the bondage in Egypt and the deliverance from that, and therefore also pointing ahead to the deliverance which would be achieved by Christ, deliverance from a an even more pernicious and devilish bondage than the Israelites ever knew there in Egypt, the bondage to sin and Satan. And now we are delivered in that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. The Feast of Weeks was the time at which the people of Israel were commanded to count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. In other words, 50 days after uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was the the day of Pentecost, right? 50 days. And obviously we know in the New Testament what happened at Pentecost. It was... The giving of the Spirit. And though the Old Testament does not explicitly make this association, later Jewish tradition would associate and utilize the Feast of Weeks as a commemoration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And if indeed that is true, that would set up a remarkable parallel. right? The giving of the law under the Old Testament economy, the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in the times of the New Testament. then there was the Feast of Booths a joyous feast that looked back to the Lord's provision for the people in the wilderness. They were to make the booths and tabernacles to remember that in the wilderness they had lived in booths. And by the time of Jesus in the first century, this feast was celebrated with the drawing of water and the lighting of a giant candelabrum, both of which apparently formed the background for what Jesus announced concerning himself during that festival in the Gospel of John, and so, during a festival where water was drawn and carried in procession to the temple, and then mixed with a drink offering and poured on, uh, poured out to the Lord, Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and he says in John seven thirty seven, "If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink." And then later on, Jesus says, John eight twelve, "I am the light of the world." He says this in a festival where the candelabrum from the temple were said to have been able to to light up every courtyard in Jerusalem. There's so much light. And Jesus says, I'm going to talk about light. I am the light of the world. The ceremony of the drawing of the water and pouring it out was looking backwards to the water out of the rock in the wilderness and was looking forward to the great outpouring of the Spirit in the, the Messianic age. And so it seems to have been with the lights of the feast as well. Back in the days of the wilderness wandering, the Lord had led his people with what? Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And so with the light of the candelabras, they seemed to be looking back to that that pillar of fire in the wilderness. And also, therefore, looking forward to the light that was to come into the world in the Messianic age. And that light came in Christ as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So these festivals were, were a mere shadow. Substance is Christ. He is the fulfillment of them. He has come, and now there's, there's no more need for a return to the shadow. Similarly, in regard to the new moons, Numbers 28, 11 through 15 gave the legislation for the offerings which were to be offered at the beginning of the month at the new moon. According to Numbers 10.10, 10, the silver trumpets were to be blown on that occasion. We find in Amos 8.5 that business would cease And this, too, was pointing forward to Christ. Certainly, the sacrifices which were offered at the time of the new moon were pointing to Christ, the the great sacrifice. And it may have pointed forward to Christ in other regards as well. John Gill, for instance, was of the opinion that the new moon was typical of the church, which is fair as the moon and receives all her light from Christ, the Son of Righteousness. And of the renewed state of the church under the gospel dispensation, when the old things of the law are passed away and all things related to church order, ordinances, and discipline are become new. And so, just as with the festivals, so also with the new moons. These things were pointing forward to Christ and find their fulfillment in him. Now, so far, I hopefully haven't said anything too controversial. The tricky part lies just ahead. Because the Apostle has said not only that no one is to be your judge in regard to food and drink, or in regard to festivals and new moons, but he also says that no one is to be your judge in regard to a Sabbath. Now what does that mean? And how should this practically play out in respect to the Lord's Day, which we now keep as Christians? Well, one approach to Paul's words here has been to say that in speaking of Sabbaths, He's not at all speaking of the seventh day Sabbath. He's rather using the word Sabbath in the broader sense of a sacred day of rest, which may or may not necessarily fall on the seventh day of the week. Or to say that perhaps he's speaking of the sabbatical year, the year of Sabbath rest in which every field was to lie fallow, which would culminate in the year of jubilee, the 50th year, the year after the seven Sabbaths had been completed. And uh, for those who would take Paul here as speaking in that sense, they would see this as having no bearing at all on the weekly Sabbath legislation of the Old Testament, bearing, uh, and therefore having no bearing at all on how we should understand the Fourth Commandment. But, in regard to that line of approach, my sympathies are much with the Reformed, uh, the Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, when he was commenting on this text and he said, in vain is the reply that weekly Sabbaths are not meant, but that it refers to the various other Sabbaths prevailing among the Jews. And then he lists out some reason. He says, number one, what ought to be proved is taken for granted. The words of the apostle do not admit it because they were general and treat of Sabbaths in the plural without any limitation. They also ought to be extended to all, nor does it become us to restrict what the Apostle has not restricted. Second reason, festivals are distinguished from Sabbaths, right? He had already said that the festivals uh, don't apply to Christians, and then he goes on to speak of Sabbaths. And uh, and so, in other words, I think there are some reasonable reasons here to think that Paul is saying something here about the seventh-day Sabbath that there is something about the seventh-day Sabbath that was a shadow, that was a type of what was to come in Christ. And therefore, there is something concerning the seventh-day Sabbath which is no longer binding concerning, uh, concerning us in the New Testament and concerning which we must let no one judge us. So, let's think about this and let's proceed with caution. Let's think about the fourth commandment. Sabbath commandment... It's given originally, uh, in, at least in the, the Mosaic law, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That's from Exodus twenty eight through 11. And so the commandment is directing the minds of those who heard it back to the divine pattern of creation. How the Lord created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. And so from, from the divine pattern there is uh, this built into the warp and woof of creation, pattern of work and of rest. It's also helpful to note that in the restatement of the law in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15, there's a further motivation for the observation of the Sabbath that is given. We read there that you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. And so the motivation in Deuteronomy 5 is the commemoration of redemption, the commemoration that they've been brought out of bondage and that God had given them rest from their bondage by his work with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and they were to remember that redemption by the keeping of the Sabbath. It's also worth our noting uh, as we read at the beginning from Exodus 31 that Exodus 31:13 through 17 refers to the Sabbath as a sign between the Lord and their generations so that they would know that it is the Lord who sanctifies them. The Sabbath rest points to the fact that it is the Lord who sanctifies his people. You find reference to that also in Ezekiel 20, verse 12. The fact that they rest from their works was a sign of the Lord's work in them, of sanctifying them, setting them Apart for them, uh, for unto the Lord, and therefore it should come as no surprise. Then what we what we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter four, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered His rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from His. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So, what the writer to the Hebrews says is that there is a rest for the people of God. We rest from our own works, just as the Lord rested from him, and that therefore we are to be diligent to, to enter into that rest. And therefore the Heidelberg Catechism described one of the requirements of the fourth commandment as being that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works, allow the Lord to work in me by his Spirit. And thus begin in this life, the everlasting Sabbath. That is the everlasting Sabbath, resting from our evil works, allowing the Lord to work in us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Similarly, the the Dutch theologian Antonius Tysus explained it this way. The Sabbath is even a symbol of Christ and his benefits in such a way that it points to the eternal and spiritual Sabbath day and the heavenly perfection that is to come because the believers rest from their evil works and allow God on this earth to perform his work in them, work that will be accomplished fully in the next life. And so the Sabbath rest, prescribed so rigidly in the Mosaic law, directed the people back to this pattern of work and rest, but it did more than that. It also pointed them to their redemption from Egypt, and reminded them of the sanctification that they received from the Lord as the Lord worked in them, that he was the Lord who sanctified them. Again, it was a sign of the Lord's work for them and in them. And in that, there is a ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath commandment that was pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's exactly what we find here in our text in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that there is in the Sabbath a ceremonial aspect which was pointing to Christ and therefore is fulfilled in Christ. But yet, it does not follow that the fourth commandment was entirely ceremonial. In other words, there is one aspect of the Sabbath that is ceremonial and has passed away with the coming of Christ, and there is one part of the Sabbath commandment that is moral and abides. And that moral part is, relates to our need for rest, again, going back to the divine pattern of work and rest, and also points to our need for a day of worship, a day of corporate worship where the church can collectively gather together. And I think the, uh, the Second Helvetic Confession was helpful in this regard when it stated that although religion be not tied unto time, yet it cannot be planted and exercised, without a due dividing and allotting out of time. Every church, therefore, does choose unto itself a certain time for public prayers and for the preaching of the gospel and for the celebration of sacraments. And so there is a moral requirement for rest according to this creational pattern of work and rest laid down by the Lord himself in creation. And there is also a moral requirement for corporate worship, the public gathering of the church. And we see this in the New Testament taking place on the Lord's Day, right? Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. So there's ceremonial aspect that has passed away in Christ, but there is a moral aspect that continues and abides still. And in that vein, I would quote with hearty approval from the, the Synod of Dort in this regard. And so uh, most of us, if uh, you're familiar at all with the Synod of Dort, we associate it with Uh, Reformed theology versus Arminianism and that certainly was the main issue on the table but after they had dealt with that there were still some other issues that the Dutch Reformed churches needed to resolve and one of the issues uh, related to the Sabbath and so they uh, compiled uh, what we might call six points on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day and I think uh, as far as I'm concerned I'm uh, pretty much hearty approval and agreement with what they laid out They said this, in the fourth commandment of the divine law, part is ceremonial, part is moral. The rest of the seventh day after creation was ceremonial, and it's rigid observation peculiarly prescribed to the Jewish people. Moral, in fact, because the fixed and enduring day of the worship of God is appointed for as much rest as is necessary for the worship of God and the holy meditation of him. With the Sabbath of the Jews having been abrogated, the Lord's Day is solemnly sanctified by Christians. From the time of the apostles, this day was always observed in the ancient Catholic Church. This same day is thus consecrated for divine worship, so that in it one might rest from all servile works, with these accepted, which are works of charity and pressing necessity, and from those recreations which impede the worship of God. And so, on the one hand, Christian, no one is to act as your judge in regard to a Sabbath day in the sense of the Jewish Sabbath. You're not bound to the Old Testament strictures of the Jewish law. And again, if I can quote from Turton, I think he was helpful when he said, Therefore, we do not think that believers are bound to Judaical precision so that it is lawful neither to kindle a fire, nor to cook food, nor to take up arms against an enemy, nor to prosecute a journey begun by land or sea, nor to refresh themselves with innocent relaxation of the mind and the body. For although this opinion bears on its face a beautiful appearance of piety, still it labors under grievous disadvantages, nor can it be retained without in this way bringing back into the church and imposing anew Upon the shoulders of Christians, an unbearable yoke, repugnant to Christian liberty and the gentleness of Christ, and opposed to the sweetness of the covenant of grace by agitating and tormenting consciences of men through infinite scruples and inextricable difficulties. So, on the one hand, we're free from the Jewish Sabbath, but on the other hand, we do need to rest, we do need to worship, we need the Lord's Day for our own spiritual well being and for our own perseverance. And I think we probably need it more than we actually think we do. Now, just to conclude briefly, I want to leave you with with two main things from the text. One is that you must not allow anyone to subject you to a yoke of slavery in regard to the Old Testament ceremonial law or anything approximating it. And in that, we should rejoice and we should stand fast. Again, Galatians 5.1. In the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. And secondly though we are not bound to the Old Testament ceremonial laws, we must not dismiss them so as to ignore them. Rather, we must look at the ceremonial law and see how how it is expounded by Christ and how it is expounded by the apostles in the New Testament and see how these things typify and foreshadow and point forward to Christ because our understanding of him and of what he has done for us will be much more rich and much more complete if we understand the shadow that was pointing forward to the substance. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ and for his coming and for the fulfillment of the ceremonial laws, the types and shadows in Christ. We, we pray that you would give us even greater understanding into these things so that we can have a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for us, and accomplished for us, and given us. And, Father, we, we ask that you would help us to, to rightly understand, to rightly divide, and rightly apply your word to our lives. Lord, we ask that we would not be subjected to a yoke of ceremonial slavery, but we also ask, Lord, that you would keep us within the bounds of your moral law, that we would not in any way be lax or loose, in regard to what you have commanded and what you require of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.